Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale, seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you with us for this week's journey on the Airlines Confidential Podcast. I'm Ben Baldanza, and as always, Chris Chimes is here in the cockpit with me. Hey, Ben. A rough week for the aviation industry, like so many other industries right now, as they try to absorb the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, Ben, that impact pales in comparison to what the Ukrainian people are dealing with. But we're going to talk about some of the airline industry backflow with Ginger Hughes from Seabury in a bit. And I'm sure Seabury is in close discussions with many of their clients in the airline business right now. But first, let's cover off a few news items. And since we're going to talk about Russia and oil prices and other matters with Ginger in a few minutes, we'll start with some other matters, Ben, including the mask extension for U.S. airline passengers. Ben, what did you think about the 30-day extension TSA announced? Any smoke signals you can read from that? Chris, this is actually kind of what I expected. I expected a very short-term extension for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, you know this administration is desperately trying to say things are back to normal or things are getting back to normal. Just in the a week or so ago at the State of the Union address, you saw very few masks in all of Congress, and I'm sure they were telling people, don't wear your mask, don't wear your mask. We want this to look normal, right? And you have school systems now and even states that have been traditionally very restrictive, like California and New York, saying you don't need to wear masks at schools anymore and things. So there's been this real momentum toward normalization of the world again as it relates to masks. And then we have this airline mandate that was due to end on February 18th, and we had flight attendant leadership and union leadership saying, we should keep this thing going, and it does keep people safe. So I think the administration was in sort of a tough position where on the one hand, they wanted to send a message of normalcy, and just like we're seeing mask mandates being reduced in a lot of places that we might want to with airplanes. The CDC guidance change didn't give them perfect ability to do that because what that did is it took what used to be just a look at case counts and made it much more robust with case counts and hospitalizations and availability of hospital supply. And they give every county a low, medium, or high ranking but with an airplane, you go from one to the other. So it wasn't exactly clear. So I think the short-term extension is a very practical solution because what it does is, as they have said, gives them 30 days to figure out what they really want to do. Number two, sort of pacifies the union leadership that we're going to keep this going for a while, but only extends it 30 days. So 
as people are traveling for summer vacations and things like that, the implication is that maybe before people really start taking all their vacations, the airline mask mandate's going to be gone. So if you want to think about timing for political positivity of removing masks, this meets that. It also sends a little olive branch to the union saying, we recognize you want this going for a little longer. And presumably in the next 30 days, they're going to put out some policy that has logical thinking around it of what the new terms will be, whether there's a mass mandate, whether it's suggested but not mandated and things like that. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I saw the 30 days just like you described, almost like a direct message to the unions and and to airline management. This isn't going to go on forever. You need to start thinking about life post-masks and the workplace and the aircraft space and how you're going to manage an optional or mask recommended kind of a, of a environment. So we'll see where that goes. I know very quietly on Friday night, the CDC for the cruise business lowered. We were at a level four over Omicron and over the New Year's holidays. They've now lowered the cruise risk advisory to a level two, which is a moderate risk. Masks are optional. Again, they're recommended, not required on cruise ships. So, um, Everyone's trying to find a path out of this. Chris, in the cruise line industry now, does every major cruise company now make masks optional or is there still one or two mandating it? I think most are now optional as far as the major lines. Now, again, because you're in a federal facility or a facility guided by federal uh, security principles like a cruise terminal, you've got to wear a mask during the check-in process. So guests come to the pier with a mask and they got to keep a mask on until they board the ship. But um, once they get on the ship, it's optional. And then Ben, we've been talking about this a bit and there's certainly been an undercurrent, but the announcement by United and its SkyWest partner that it's dropping service to 29 small communities this summer was made last week, specifically citing the pilot shortage. There have been some incremental announcements these past four or five months, but this was a bit of a bomb cyclone, I think. It was a bomb cyclone, Chris. And since the industry was deregulated many, many years ago, there has been concern about service to small communities. And as you know, Chris, the original Airline Deregulation Act in 1978 established a program called the EAS, or Essential Air Service Program, which provides federal subsidies to small communities who are otherwise at risk of losing commercial air service. And that subsidy has been renewed over and over and over again and still exists, although it's smaller today than it was 30, 40 years ago. And the way the industry has made things work is outsourcing to regional carriers who have lower costs to serve many of these communities also provide the service with smaller planes, which are generally better sized for service from a lot of these smaller places. And in a few places, they still get a subsidy to keep it going. Now with a real pilot shortage and with airplanes coming back into service for high leisure demand, 
if you're United or any big airline, you're clearly going to want to use the crew and the staff that you have to fly the biggest volume of people you have. And those big volumes don't come from the smallest cities. Those cities provide good feed into hubs like Denver and Chicago and Houston for United and Newark, but they don't provide the biggest volume of people. Those come flying big cities to big cities with bigger airplanes. So it doesn't surprise me that United has prioritized with SkyWest in the way they have, but it does suggest that the combination of higher fuel prices, fewer pilots, and further consolidation in the industry to some extent is going to continue to put air service in the smallest cities at somewhat at risk. And that's not the worst thing in the world. And maybe that's not fair for me to say since I don't live in a place like that. But some places are within a reasonable drive of a place that does have air service. Others are a little further away from that. And those probably would justify some other service in terms of economically justifying it, meaning enough people might fly out of there and pay compensatory rates to get to a big hub or something. So I think this is going to work itself out. It's going to be driven by the economics of where it makes sense, where the airlines can fly the most people. But it's unfortunate to those 29 small communities. I haven't looked at all the places they're canceling yet. And I'm not sure that United is the unique carrier in all 29 of those places. It's possible that United and SkyWest dropping those 29, they may still have some service from a Delta partner or an American partner or maybe a Legion, you know, possibly. I'd have to look that up and maybe one of our listeners knows that. Yeah, I think some of these towns, sorry, cities um, might have two carriers in there, but I think a a vast amount of them, I'm looking at the list now. I find it hard to believe that Devil's Lake, North Dakota, or Fort Dodge, Iowa, or Liberal, Kansas, among the cities on this list, have more than one carrier, especially an essential air service carrier. So if I'm the mayor of one of those cities, I'm not going to be very happy, but I think they've been seeing this coming. Well, it would make a good headline, Chris, if they said liberals lose all air service, for example. <laughs> We're not supposed to get political, Ben. Yes, I know. That was a joke. And if there's a conservative Pennsylvania somewhere, maybe they should lose service. Too. <laughs> TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and only pay for what was consumed, which translates to enhanced operations and true savings. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And thanks to our friends at Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, an especially finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. 
Ben, as we wrap up the news discussion, uh, there has been quite a bit of media coverage about the impact of economic sanctions on the Russian flagship carrier Aeroflot. You know, they've spent decades transforming that airline. It now flies a modern fleet of Airbus and Boeing aircraft. They joined the SkyTeam Alliance, and they vastly improved their services and technology. But it seems like that decades of work has been undone in a matter of weeks. Well, that's right, Chris. And as the world reacts to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and are trying to put whatever pressure the world can on Vladimir Putin and the Russians to say, you know, hey, rejoin sort of the world stage here. So as people are pulling their business out, McDonald's closing their facilities. We talked last week about uh, Sabre and the GDSs saying they're not going to serve those. Delta canceling their code share with with Aeroflot and all. It's going to be very, very hard for Aeroflot to do much over the next couple of months with no partners, no reservation system services and such. On the other hand, I can't imagine that there are that many people flying in and out of Russia right now, maybe within Russia, but certainly a lot of travel that may have taken place into that part of the world is not taking place because of what's going on there. So even if Aeroflot were operating, they probably wouldn't be all that full right now. So while it has sort of undone a lot of what Aeroflot put in, it wouldn't be that hard to get them back to where they were if Russia decided to start playing well in the sandbox again. Right. Sabre could start providing services again in the GDSs. McDonald's could even reopen, not that that's related to the airline industry. Right. Assuming that they're maintaining their fleet of airplanes, they've got good airplanes, assuming they have capable crews and things like that. The ability to essentially relaunch Aeroflot or launch it back to its, you know, pre invasion status shouldn't be that hard once the macro environment suggests that Russia should be able to run a commercial airline. I just don't feel like it's going to end anytime soon, though. Uh, as you watch this, it just, you know, again, we're not political experts or war experts or anything like that, but it just looks like Vladimir Putin is digging in deeper and getting squeezed in ways he didn't anticipate and doesn't know how to go. And so I think this is going to, drag on for a while. I think Aeroflot has canceled all of their international flying, so I don't know how much of a domestic market they have left. But with the shortage of parts, with Boeing and Airbus no longer shipping parts and providing any technical expertise uh, into the country, I mean, at some point, even if there was much of a domestic market, those aircraft are all going to be grounded too. So it'll certainly take a while for them to dig back out. I don't think decades like it took to get to this place, but um, it's going to take a while to recover. Well, we'll be right back with our talk with Ginger Hughes and more of the ripple effect of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. 
We're very happy to be welcoming Ginger Hughes of Seabury Securities to the show. Ginger, the airline industry never fails to provide excitement and changes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your tenure in the airline business and what you're doing for Seabury Securities? Thanks, Ben. Thank you both. It's a pleasure to be on. It's a wild ride right now in aviation, although um, those who I've said for years think that this is, you know, we're going to turn this corner and be stable. Uh, I've learned not to uh, accept that. So I'm one of those accidental aviation geeks. I loved travel as a child, but I had no exposure to the industry. Really, it started when I was immediately out of undergrad and I had an accounting degree and I was working for Ernst & Young. And three days in, I was assigned to work with Southwest Airlines. And which was great, you know, as, as a Dallasite, uh, it really was an iconic company and one that it was a very coveted position. Uh, but I knew nothing about what I was walking into. And I walked into that and two days later was working on the acquisition of Morris Air. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was fascinated. And that should have been about, or Southwest Airlines typically would have been about 20% of my schedule, but very quickly I found a way to make it about 80% of my schedule. I was truly in love with the industry. I was in uh, with that EY airline group for about eight years, took a spin through London um, when BA and American were working on their first investments in their One World Partners. And it did create a huge uh, opportunity for me to work with airlines around the globe because certainly um, the business is different um, when you're in different parts of the world. Um, from there, um, I could see you know, what was happening in the accounting profession coming out of the Enron scandal. Um, and I interviewed with this very small firm uh, called Seabury on September 10th, 2001. Um, needless to say, the next day, it was a crossroads. I was either jumping fully into this industry that I loved, or I was going to pivot directly out of it, and I chose to dive fully into the industry. So through Seabury, I've had 20 years as of last month, uh, and, and the way I describe it is helping airlines solve problems when they're at a crossroads. That's everything from strategy shifts to fleet selection and financing to crisis and financial restructuring to solving frustrated contractual relationships, everything from capacity purchase agreements, loyalty programs, distribution, and the like. So heavy on the restructuring, but a lot of, uh, a lot of coverage uh, beyond that. So, Ginger, that sets you up to talk uh, with a lot of expertise about what we want to discuss today, specifically Ukraine, Russia, fuel prices, the financial status of the airline business. So, first up, with the recent invasion by Russia into Ukraine, that certainly created a global response on multiple levels, and, and industries and economies continue to absorb the impact and take actions to isolate Russia. From your perspective, what are the top three implications for the aviation and aerospace industries? So whether in normal operational disruptions are bad enough, um, but for any of the carriers that have substantial flying east of Europe, uh, this is much worse. The airline industry is one of the only industries in the world that has valuable assets. That's both physical assets and people moving through multiple jurisdictions on a daily basis. There's a complex set of political agreements, industry-governed rules, and, and laws that provide the protection of those assets as they move around. If those political agreements and industry-governed rules are compromised, which is what's happening during this war at, at the extreme um, that we've never seen before, 
you have airlines scrambling, airlines, lessors, lenders, basically the entire ecosystem looking through to protect the value of those assets, um, as well as the safety and security of the people and those assets. And it sounds simple, but it's incredibly complex. I just came out of ISTAT and, and folks talking about what it is to protect just the metal. And, and then you start thinking about the businesses themselves and all the dominoes that come with it. It's amazing, Ginger, what's going on and how it's affecting the airlines. Well, let's talk about fuel prices. Just yesterday, I filled up our Jeep Grand Cherokee and was wondering before the pump shut off whether it was going to hit three digits or not. It didn't, but it started with a nine. And so we're all seeing the sticker shock at the gas pump. What's going on with the jet fuel market right now? And in the U.S., and are those trends being replicated in other regions? Yeah, so somewhat. So first is that, you know, we've seen a you know, very steep spike. You know, we saw it up to the mid 100s. It's, it's now moderated to back, back a bit down. And when I saw it the 100s, I'm talking about crude because um, I'll talk about crack spread in a minute. But we saw that spike up, but that moderation. And so we see that, you know, and we've seen that trading that I, I can attribute that to trading. That's not necessarily the core of the commodity, but we saw the run up in fuel most of this year. We just saw the spike in the last two weeks. Some regions, particularly Europe, um, have been harder hit because they have a higher reliance upon that Russian oil. Uh, but but as a global matter, you know, we, we just saw a spike up and a moderate down. We're not down to where we were before uh, before the invasion, but we certainly are are seeing a moderation of that spike at least at the end of last week. So how does this run up compare to previous historic increases like during the Gulf War? If you layered the spike on, you layered the run up on a graph, it, it's actually quite similar. Um, you see the immediate effect. And when I say that, it's not you know, previous run-ups that, that hit military conflict in oil supply regions. That's really what the core of the driver is. And we always see at the onset of these conflicts a, a, a run-up, a spike in the price, in the spot price, and the near-term futures. Um, but what happens, and, and we're seeing the same thing today, the long-term curve maybe up a bit, but it still moderates itself right back down to where it was before these conflicts began. That said, we're faced right now with a situation where the fuel price was already having a bit of a run-up, a steady increase, before the conflict began. And I think that's where the real question is going to be is, you know, everybody will say, but it's so volatile. It has been volatile before 2022, but it was volatile within what I think of as a manageable band for airlines. You know, revenue managers can kind of you know manage through it, capture as much as they can when it goes up and quite frankly, give not as much back when it goes back down. But getting over 100 bucks a barrel is where this gets really difficult. We'll have more of our conversation with Ginger Hughes in just a moment. As a reminder, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com sustainability. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential. 
Ginger, what segments of the airline industry are going to be most impacted by a sustained level of higher fuel prices? Small communities, regional airlines, the new startups? What about airlines like Delta that have made strategic decisions to keep older, less fuel-efficient aircraft in their fleet? I think we all know the most obvious impact um, is going to be kind of immediate service reductions. Um, and, and that's really going to be it going to appear pretty acute in the U.S. But some of that is actually tied up with what's been going on with those regional carriers. Uh, those regional carriers that support those markets have already been struggling um, with the significant attrition and dwindling pilot supply. And that's all at the same time that the mainline carriers have accelerated their hiring. And this was, you know, this was a fact before we ever saw any change in fuel price. Many of those carriers are actually forecasting a 20% or more reduction in their block hours. So that, that, again, that was before you saw any change in the fuel price. And I think we're going to see more of that. And we've also seen, you know, at the onset of the pandemic, a few of those carriers that didn't survive. So, you know, that 20% reductions we're seeing is on top of some of those carriers that didn't make it. I mean, I think there's no question that, you know, everybody was trying to hold the regional carriers together in the networks as much as they could in the supply environment. But these fuel prices are maybe the final straw that actually drives some of those changes in the networks. I'm not sure that actually results in reduction in seats, but it definitely will you know, have an impact on the flight schedules themselves and the convenience from the, some of these communities um, in what they're seeing in their air service. If you go to the broader industry, I think we're going to see an accelerated retirement of old technology aircraft. You know, we've all been through this enough. We've seen these shifts in uh, new technology, and those shifts always come on the backs of significant run-ups in fuel. Uh, For example, the development of the NEO and the MAX. Those came out of the run-up in 08 when everybody, you know, hit the panic button um, and, and needed much more fuel efficient aircraft. So, so while each of these aircraft are actually in high demand, the NEO and the MAX, some are actually speculating that we have production shortages of these aircraft. Many of those aircraft are actually planned for growth. So when you look at an aircraft on a head-to-head basis, if, if you're thinking about, you think just take the narrow bodies, for example, if you've got fuel prices in the $40 to $70 a barrel range, it's really difficult to make the decision for new technology to beat the old on economics alone. So if you're just looking at an, you know, an IRR of, of a, a replacement aircraft, on the economics alone, the new technology is tough to, to beat, especially when you're dealing with used aircraft prices that are hit so hard during the pandemic. That doesn't mean that the carriers aren't choosing some of those aircraft. They're doing it because they have other reasons for that, for those decisions. It could be near-term cash flows for maintenance honeymoons reliability, sustainability, or quite frankly, what the primary source was, which is growth. But if you think about higher fuel prices, some of that growth is going to shift to replacement. Ginger, no doubt most airline management teams feel like they've been through the car wash with the top down after these last two years. So how are airline balance sheets right now with regard to being able to handle this operating environment we're heading into? It's not pretty. Yes. The last couple of years have been ugly. I would say the the carriers, particularly the U.S. carriers, had the luxury of building up mountains of debt at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And that sounds like a strange comment. But, you know, in the last cycle, there was no ability to go build up the debt. 
you know, they had everything pledged, the markets weren't open, but we had that ability this time. And the airlines did what they should have done, which is go build up, you know, the debt that was they had access to because we know nobody knew what the pandemic was going to do to the industry in the long run. We actually have seen before before the latest run up in fuel in particular um, that some of those carriers were looking to start to pay down that debt and, and Delta was leading that because we now you know had some view of coming out of the pandemic and that cushion that the debt provided was less critical and they turned to the cost of that debt. I mean, it does come, it, it was you know, relatively low rate, um, but it does come with a pre- pretty significant debt service. Now, if we see fuel prices sustaining at a higher level, I think we're going to see, you know, putting the brakes on cleaning up the balance sheet and, and going back into uh, contingency planning mode. It, and that really gets to where we see when when and if we see a, an equilibrium hit with the fuel prices, because, you know, airlines can handle increases and decreases in fuel prices, but the the run up and run down is where it gets difficult because you got to deal with a booking curve. You got to deal with, you know, recapturing as much of that as you can in your pricing. And, and so significant short term changes are, are very difficult to manage. But at the end of the day, the big question I have is, you know, if we are in a sustained over $100 a barrel oil, I, I hope we're not in that situation. But if we are in a situation where we're dealing with $100 a barrel oil, that's going to have a really big long-term sustained impact on the industry. Well, Ginger, do you think the Russian invasion is going to cause any kind of reset by major U.S. airlines in regard to their outlook for 2022? What about other regions of the world? So if we think about the other regions of the world, it really goes back to how many of those carriers fly over or into Russia uh, as part of their core business. Uh, the European carriers are, are likely to be hit some of the hardest, um, and it's definitely going to have an impact on their outlook for 2022. If you think about many, some of those carriers, some of those carriers are just getting their long haul business back to Asia, and now they you know, don't have the ability to have the most efficient routing between Europe and Asia. Um, in some cases, they're requiring tech stops and the like to be able to maintain that network. Some of those carriers have trimmed that service, just taken the service out, and some of them are looking at different ways, you know, going over Alaska uh, or, or the like. So, so there's no question it's going, you know, that it is going to have an impact on the entirety of, Q, of uh, 2022 for those carriers, particularly long haul carriers in Europe. Ginger, back in 2008, when oil reached $147 a barrel, that led to significant consolidation in the airline business. Is it too soon to make any predictions about 2022 and beyond and the current situation? I've learned a long time ago not to speculate about what might happen in this industry, especially when it relates to fuel prices. We, In fact, if I go back and think about the way we used to build business plans, we used to make our own judgments on fuel prices with our clients. We quit doing that. The curve is the curve. It, in all seriousness, seriousness, no. Um, if you think about the U.S., there's likely to be some further consolidation in the long run, but I don't see fuel prices as the catalyst for any of that. Um, we really saw a catalyst in 2008 um, that came back not necessarily to fuel prices specifically, but to rational pricing. Um, and you just had too many carriers chasing you know, too few passengers and they were going at, at a pricing game. So that was really what kind of, pre- it, it, the fuel price exacerbated that, but it, you know, it was definitely a, a high, highly competitive world long before the fuel prices took over. 
That said, the place that where really needs to be consolidation for the health of the industry is in Europe. And I'm going to get the statistic wrong because, quite frankly, things have changed a bit in the last couple of years. Um, but it used to be in the U.S., you've got you know four carriers that basically pick up 80% of the passenger traffic. The reverse is true in Europe. It's a very broad set of carriers that carry passengers through Europe and, and into and out of Europe. And that's really difficult from a competitive environment standpoint. It just creates too many people trying to price up for we all know is relatively a commodity service. Well, Ginger, I think it's smart that you don't make predictions since it's they almost never come true and we're always surprised at what happens, right? I'm going to ask you to make one more kind of prediction, though, which is how are you advising your clients about the return of business travel? We see initially there's were a lot of airline CEOs saying it's all coming back. We recently had the CEO of Acor Hotels saying, I think a quarter of it's not coming back. Bill Gates said 50% isn't coming back. What are you telling your clients? So as you can imagine, you, you both know us well, we've had a lot of debates about this uh, amongst my colleagues. And, and I'd say we don't always come to a consensus, which is probably a healthy, healthy result at the end of the day. My personal view is business travel has permanently changed. That doesn't mean that we're going to have a significant reduction in the total volume of business travel, but what we travel for, where we travel to, it has changed. Um, some of the examples I give are kind of the Monday, Thursday consultants, you know, both the companies that those consultants work for and the clients that they serve have figured out that they don't have to be in person every week for four or five days of that week to get the work done. So some of that is not going to come back, but at the end of the day, personal relationships and in-person personal relationships matter. I think back to the days uh, when you know I was flying up to Crystal City for the better part of two years during the US Airways bankruptcy. And I compare that to you know some of what we've done in, in recent years, which has been remote. And there's no question the relationships developed when we're you know, in person up there for that extended period of time, they prove you know, long-term relationships. And, and if you're doing everything remotely, relationship building is tough. So I just use that as an example, but it really goes broader. You know, you know salespeople, yes, there's some efficiency in getting on Zoom calls and, and, and the like, but there's no substitute for in-person relationship development. So I think the, you know, that what we're traveling for and how we travel is changed. But I do believe that, you know, at the end of the day, volume is going to come back and that may be partially driven by growth, but, and, but there is going to be some level of return of the core business travel. Well, Ginger, this has been a great conversation. You've shared a lot of your knowledge and insight with our listeners. So we appreciate you're spending some time with us. We also appreciate the longtime support of Seabury Securities for the podcast. You've been with us from the beginning. So our listeners enjoy the show and it's in part because of Seabury. So wish you the best. Very good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Ginger. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com.
Thanks again to Ginger Hughes from Seabury Securities for a great discussion. Now it's time for listener questions. Please email your questions to questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Justin in Western Massachusetts. On February 7th, the FAA published a draft notice to strengthen the ODA program, ODA standing for the FAA's Organization Designation Authorization Program, by limiting management interference with company employees performing oversight on the FAA's behalf. Is there a good reason not to use a model more like what the SEC does, where companies have to pay for an external auditor? And how do countries outside the USA manage this problem of potential conflict of interest? This is a great question, Justin. And I've looked into this, but also I'm not an attorney or an expert on FAA regulation. So Chris, maybe at some point we can get someone to come in on the show and really educate us all on this. But my understanding of this is that this change on February 7th is relatively a minor update of a ruling that's been in place since 2013 around the organization designation authorization program. This is essentially relates to how FAA personnel work with manufacturers and airlines to oversee safety, which is the FAA's primary directive. And what I see this as is a follow-on from the changes happening at the FAA from the 737 MAX crashes. We've seen that the FAA got a little bit of egg on their face, in a sense, when those planes crashed, and there was a sense that maybe their oversight delegated a bit too much to Boeing, that they let Boeing to do too many things. And we've seen a recent reaction to that with the 787s, as they're coming back with their batteries and the FAA says, we're going to inspect every single airplane before it's recertified. That's a reaction to that. And I think what the FAA is systematically doing, which I really applaud, by the way, is what the FAA is doing is they're going back and looking at all the places where they interact with airlines and manufacturers in a safety oversight role and tightening up the rules to make sure that there is true independence, um, true transparency of information and such. And that's how I see this change. Now, Justin, you say, is there a good reason not to use a model more like the SEC does? I think that's a real interesting statement you make. Companies who are overseen by auditors Uh, Public companies have to be overseen by an independent external auditor. And there's two parts about that. One of them you mentioned, that the companies have to pay for an external auditor. So maybe you're saying airlines should have to pay for their external safety oversight. I'm not sure we should go there because the FAA and the DOT collect money through airline tickets to help fund all this. So in a way, the airlines are already paying for this. But what I like about the SEC idea is that 
auditors have to rotate their principal partner every five years or so. And what that does is it stops an individual person from getting too uh, chummy, if you will, with the management of the airlines. And they remain independent and keep that strong sense of independence by rotating the partners regularly. The FAA has not done that so much. And I certainly saw when I was at Spirit, when we moved our FAA oversight office from Detroit to Fort Lauderdale, we noticed some things that made me think about this SEC rule back at that time. The Detroit office didn't want to lose Spirit because we were a fairly large airline in Detroit for them to oversee. And if they lost Spirit, they might lose staffing or maybe even lose pay from a job class not being as high in terms of the amount of what they had to do in that office. And so did they let us get away with things that weren't safe? Of course not. But did they over the top sort of say, we want to work with you more so that you don't want to leave us? I think that was true too. So I think this idea of rotating FAA officers is a good idea taken from the SEC. And as it relates to this question, I know this is a real long answer, and maybe I didn't even get to what you wanted to, Justin, but I think that the the right way to interpret this February 7th, 2022 change is as a continual update of a program that's been in place for a number of years now to, again, tighten up those rules around oversight and transparency and independence. Yeah, there are probably tens of thousands of pages of regulations related to the airline FAA manufacturer relationships. So there's going to be these periodic cleanups, if you will. And this was no doubt one of them, uh, like you said, related to the 737 and 787 issues. Well, Chris, Matt from Dallas sent us this note. Hey, guys, longtime listener, first time writer. Love the show. Just had one minor quibble. Chris, in your shout out to new Southwest CEO Bob Jordan during episode 122, you mentioned it was hard to believe that Southwest has had only three CEOs in its 50-year history. Well, as it happens, a big part of the reason that might seem hard to believe is that it's not true. In fact, there have now been three CEOs at Southwest just since the year I was hired at the company back in 2003 and six in total since the company's inception. Those being Lamar Muse, Howard Putnam, Herb Kelleher, Jim Parker, Gary Kelly, and now Bob Jordan. Anyway, keep up the great work. Matt, thank you for writing. Uh, first of all, for uh, giving the facts to us, that was totally my bad. I should have, first of all, remembered Jim Parker. I guess I just um, skipped over the fact that when people talk about her being the founder, that he was the first CEO, but he wasn't. So I appreciate your writing, and I also appreciate your proving the point. My wife thinks I never admit that I'm wrong. I am wrong many times, including at home. So you pointed that out to me as well on the air. So thanks again. Well, and thanks because I could have caught it too. So it's uh, that goes to me too. I could have said, wait a minute, Chris, what about <laughs> Howard Putnam? What about Lamar Muse? Right? That's right. You were just so fascinated with my voice that you just let me keep talking. <laughs>
Ben, one more question uh, for us to take. And my apologies, I had a little IT meltdown in my filing system. And so I think this question is from Matt in Denver, but it might be from Eric in Minneapolis. But either way, it's a good question and it comes from a regional airline pilot. Hello, Ben and Chris. Been listening to the show for a while now and I had a question regarding the Airbus 220. The other day I was flying with a senior captain and we were taxing behind a 220 and I mentioned how good looking that airplane is. And the captain looked at me and said, that airplane could be the one that puts us out of business, us being regional airlines, if the majors keep buying them. What's your take on that statement? Do you think the Airbus 220 is a real threat to regional airlines in the U.S.? You know, that captain who said that has amazing insights, actually, and thinks more about just than just the flight he's flying, you know, in terms of his role in the industry and the role of the regionals. I don't think the 220 is going to replace all the regional airlines in the U.S. But what he's right about is the 220 is a real game changer for the industry. It's the first new commercial narrow body that was designed, you know, for 30 years plus since the A320s and 737s were first designed. Even though it was originally built by Bombardier, if Airbus or Boeing had drawn from scratch a new narrow body airplane, it's very likely they would have come up with something just like the 220 in terms of its use of uh, lightweight but strong materials. It's super efficiency, its cabin capability, its range, the technology in the plane. So it's a great airplane. And I think what it's going to do is it's going to put pressure on the 737 and A320 families, especially the smaller versions of those planes. It absolutely will replace some regional flying on bigger routes that the regional airlines tend to fly. But I don't think that how the regionals serve the big airlines in the U.S. is going to go away just because of the 220. Also, you don't have all the big carriers ordering that plane yet, and they can't make them fast enough. So I don't think the 220 is going to replace the regionals. Might it replace some regional flying on some routes? Yes, I think that's possible. But what it's going to do is it's going to make the airlines that use that airplane more efficient, able to fly to more cities more often, probably with lower fares too because of its efficiency. So that captain was right that that plane's a real game changer, but I don't think it's a real threat to the regional airlines. Between economics of smaller aircraft, fuel efficiency, pilot shortages, Mm -hmm carbon emission targets, all these things are going to converge into you know a number of ways that will change the industry over the next 10 or 20 years, Ben, I think. So, you know, we're seeing it with the retirement of 50-seaters. It's going to continue in different ways. We talked about the service pullbacks to small cities by United and SkyWest. All these things are going to continue. Aircraft are going to get larger. There's going to be more targeted ways to serve regions and certainly not small cities. So all these things come to play. I don't think Airbus, I don't think the Airbus 220, like you said, is the one thing, but it certainly factors into these equations that we're all going to be watching. 
Ben, our final wine is a follow-up to last week's issue with Ryanair's Comfort Seat product offering. We heard back from Alex, who had submitted the original inquiry. And let me say I feel a special kinship with Alex because we can both admit that we are wrong sometimes. Alex wrote, I wanted to add an update to last week's finer wine I submitted. Ryanair is a little unclear in the process about how to secure seats next to each other. That said, I have to rate this a wine myself now that I've read their website more closely. Their algorithm is very punitive. 8, 9, and 10 D, E, and F, along with many other rows, were all available, yet it intentionally sat us in 8D, 9D, and 10D when it could have easily put us together. They intentionally split parties, obviously, to get you to purchase seats, even when it's not necessary, which is a U.S. flyer I was not accustomed to. That said, I do have to acknowledge this is tucked away in the very last sentence of the help article for purchasing an extra comfort seat, which says, if you chose not to select and purchase a seat and have been allocated seats which are not together, please contact our call center or you can online chat with one of our team members. Well, Alex, thank you for this update. And thanks for having the, the perseverance to actually go look this up and see that, you know, somewhere in the fine print, they told you what you would have to do to get those seats together. Now, this industry relies sometimes too much on that fine print or something in the contract of carriage or something to justify why they do something that a customer thinks isn't the most customer-friendly thing to do. But in this case, it looks like Ryanair sort of put it out there that we really want you to buy these seats. And if you don't, we're going to make it hard for you. That is different than the U.S. carriers. And I appreciate the fact that you went and looked this up and basically tried to understand, did you really get screwed by Ryanair or did they effectively do what they told you that they were going to do, even if you didn't know that at the time you bought your tickets? So Alex had a wine, but he is a fine Airlines Confidential listener. How's that? I think that's a great way to say it. As we wrap up, I want to give my weekly shout out to celebrity chef Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen organization. His volunteers are on the ground in Ukraine, as well as several neighboring countries providing meals to Ukrainian citizens and refugees. Carnival Cruise Line is supporting their work, and I also know United Airlines is as well. And other airlines are stepping up to support other organizations like UNICEF and Save the Children. So good job. Well, my shout out this week goes to the regional airline employees who listen to our show. The regional airlines right now are under a tough situation. We talked earlier about the 220. We also talked earlier about SkyWest and United having to cancel some service for to small cities because of... Um, pilot shortages, but regional airlines provide a real important role in the U.S. And they're in a, very, a very important part of the travel industry and the networks of especially the big airlines. So while it's a difficult time, given all the issues and higher fuel prices, in some ways might help that industry in the sense that they can still be a little lower cost. And if at higher fuel prices, it might make less sense to fly a big jet when ticket prices get a little higher and such. Um, I think that the regional airlines are here. They're here to stay. And while they're certainly going to continue to go through some change, my shout out goes to everyone who works in that industry because you're real important to what we all do. 
I agree, Ben. And with that, let's wrap it up and say goodbye. See you next week. Thanks again to Ginger for a great interview, too. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.